0: Being... Uh, good. Good. I just heard a voice that said before you
1: Welcome to Follow Podcast episode 73 and all who sail in a, It's a futile fall showdown, all founded songs going head to head and then always to be repeated showdown split into four eras 77 to 85, 86, 93, 94, 01, 02, 17. Joined by Michelle Pippington Rugby. I eat hot dogs. I live on pies. I'm 45. Phil, how are you doing? I didn't
2: believe you were going to say that. I'm very well, actually, all right? Thank you. How are you?
1: I'm all right. I'm not too bad. I'm a bit nervous because we've got a, a, a guest tonight, but I'll get into that a little bit more in a few minutes. I'm Tree Three Beards. My hands are cupped. And uh, are we joined by Tiny Tim Toafilm?
2: Is tapped on the radiator from the other side, yes.
1: Okay, and uh, Lord Sage Temple might turn up. Ubu Leroy is a home hobgoblin. He may uh, turn up at some point, but but we have a guest. Uh, Mayo Thompson of uh, rock and roll legendary status, uh, mostly the Red Crayola. Mayo, uh, thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for inviting me. Pleasure to be with you, I think.
1: Well, only time will tell, won't it? So... um, what we're going to do is we're going to take uh we're going to do some of our regular head-to-head uh bits where we we put some fall songs up against each other but we're going to take you know we're going to indulge ourselves and take a, a lot of red crayola tangents uh and try and see because there's so many ways that i think the way you approach music and, and language that it crosses over with the parts of the fall that we love and obviously there's a very specific connection that you recorded you just so have to record eight or nine of the best songs the fall ever did
0: i only worked on six tunes with them go on then i Jack, big city hub goblins uh how i wrote elastic man uh uh a block totally wired and one other b-side wait a second i'll find it in the course of time or, or just those ones uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Jack was the first. The thing that I recall working. on. We worked on that in Wales. And my favorite line, of course, is "Eat this grenade." Yes, I say. I think he meant it. He, I, th-
1: <laughs> I think maybe he did, but who was he directing towards is always the question.
0: Um... I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't have any insight into the psychology of the guy. I just, you know, I took a look at the words, and uh, from, from my point of view, as far as you know, British punk was concerned, and the British the, the, the literature of that. Um, era, that time, apart from, you know, the ladies' bands, maybe Raincoats and some other, a couple of others, uh, they had the most ex, uh, exhilarating use of language, you know, on a par with the transformative formations, of, you know, Dylan effect on what people dared to talk about and started to talk about in the 60s. And uh, I think, you know, Mark, and I know he also had a literary background. He was really uh, steeped in the kinds of literature, like American, some American literature. I mean, like, Lawrence of felt loves uh, Jack Kerouac, right yeah. and I can imagine that my Mark had his favorites as well. although we never just talked about writing you know I just read it you know, he talked literary all the time he, he was he was a literary trick. Right?
1: Yeah, he mentioned some specific points in the songs this evening, and, and, and maybe we can uh, touch on that. And obviously at that time you were working with, and and, and have continued to work with art and language, the arts. So um, if, if it's okay, could we, we start off with a little bit, of a few tracks from that um, international artist era, from like maybe 67 to about 70?
0: You lead the way.
1: Okay. I'll play a, a little section of a few of those. So. I will not talk to you there was a pink stainless tail off a uh, parable of arable land 67 uh water pour from a uh, coconut hotel which was 67 i believe but remained unreleased for quite a while uh oh. say, save the house from the god bless the red crayola 68 and the lesson from the debt to his father from 70. um would you uh, what so basically my only question mayo in all of this is yeah, what what were the highlights of that era for you in in terms of your composition, and your lyrics, and the people you played with? Maybe the culture just
0: beginning to be able to work seriously in the music in the Houston music scene to be t- in, you know to be taken seriously by serious people was uh, quite a lot of uh, satisfaction and, and uh, to be able to promote ideas uh, that were nobody had heard yet. Things like that, I think, I and mean, it was you know like. Not trying to write tunes, in the center, just trying to write tunes, trying to figure out how to do that, and in the process, avoiding doing things that other people were doing, um, particularly the blues, which a lot of people had that ter- brilliantly covered, uh, and it had been for years. one credit, of course, the British for uh, waking up the Americans uh, nationwide, not just regionally but nationwide to the power. and uh so and that influenced and, and played a role in texas you know and so did R&B, you know, bobby bland uh um, zydeco music clifton chenere um you know then and, and cajun bands white cajun bands playing not zydeco music uh, but the stuff that made like they sound like hank williams and all that stuff it was all rampant there And getting to know the people who were who worked the scene like if, uh, Leland Rogers approaching us, you know. Actually, just more than anything, getting started playing gigs. And uh, my girlfriend, uh, Louaina K. Anderson, was uh, she launched that band and our, our band in the music business. She introduced uh, introduced Ray and I to Ray Rush, who had was had worked with the Crickets uh, and Buddy Holly, and uh, he was a publisher. and He listened to uh, listened to our tunes. Uh, he, we sat in his living room and played him a couple of tunes. Started off playing uh, uh, Transparent Radio, saying Selfless Maidens. Live. And he said, stop, 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 stop. And I said, what? He said, did you say Selfless Maidens? Oh, I said, no, 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 Selfless Maidens. Yeah. Ah, ah, do it, go on. And you know anyone like that. And it was fun uh, to meet people like that and uh, get into the game. And it really is a kind of a, the, the product and distribution game for me always. I had the privilege of it being quite game-like. And being able to, you know, to play some things and have some, uh, I don't know, nerve and walk in and do stuff. And then finally, we met playing in a club one night, uh, a gay club where they had after hours and we could sit in with a band. I went and played one uh, number. We played Mother, a number that later appears off a finger painting. And uh, Bob Stiffick said he'd like to buy that tune from me. And then I said, I know that's my mother, dude. You know, uh, <laughs> you know. And he had a he had a hit tune with called My My Little Surf Woody, and he had a label. And we had a, when we got a band together, he invited us. I believe it was he who wanted that tune. Anyway, he invited us to make a recording. So we did Dairy Maid's Lament and a free piece because we didn't have any idea what to do on the B side. So we just like freaked out. The forerunner of the things that you hear on Coconut and <clears throat> on Live '67. The Berkeley Folk Festival stuff, where we uh, they say they killed a dog. Um, this, um, that was that, and then that led to being in the KNUC radio, one of the two top 40 stations. They had a battle of the bands, and we were invited to play because we had some sort of cachet being different from everybody else, and uh, and having played clubs and having gotten our names around and played for a bit here and there and everywhere, thanks to Miss Anderson, and in no small part, and um. At the Battle of the Bands, we played. Uh, we we made it to the finals. Uh, we didn't know that, that there were such things, right? And the finals, we performed in a tent in the parking lot of a shopping center where we had started. Where we met Leland Rogers, gate Mall, and the other opponent. Our opponent at the other end of the tent was Johnny Winter Sexton. I mean, I, I knew <laughs> I knew Johnny and Edgar a little bit. I would see them because I played some of the folk club. I played La Maison when it was still a folk club, and. Uh, great players the two of them you meet them and you know it's like really strange fellas both of them but musicians they won of course but we had a wonderful evening and freaked out and, and and a lot of fun and had some notoriety from it and Leland Leland asked us if we wanted to do this right after we had recorded with Bob Steffi and we said we went to Bob and said gee Bob um would you mind if we went with international artists instead and Bob went no go ahead you know he was that kind of dude, a really nice fellow, and <laughs> so off we went with Leland and signed with International's. And he understood what we were doing fairly well. He saw us at the perform at the Gate Mall, and he liked to say that we couldn't play a lick, and and, and that the audience was nevertheless transfixed and so on. He knew how to spin things very. Not not that we could play; we were not, we weren't, you know, like Lost and Found who could play very well, and uh, the Elevators who are also you know quite. Musical, uh, yeah. in, in the traditional sense, in, in, you know, and we relished, you know, not fitting to some extent, and enjoyed like being the fly in the ointment. Uh,
1: well, I think that was my my question about the scene at that time in Houston. You know, we we hear about the 13th four elevators, and yourself. Was it that distinct that there was two bands that were blazing the trail, and everybody else was was uh, Johnny winters and playing mm-hmm. folk clubs, and, and... Well, there were
0: lots of bands. Uh, raindrops keep falling on my head as a Houston guy. You know, I mean, yeah. there was, and there were some, there were several Neil Ford and the Fanatics, and uh, 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 I can't recall these guys' names, but they were active. Mickey Gilley, guys I played, I went to college with, Bob Rains and Paul Norris were drummers. And Mickey Gilley would call up Bob Rains and get him to come with us. And Mickey Gilley was like a distant cousin of Jerry Lee Lewis. It's a, uh, I know who were, uh, they were both related to Reverend Falwell, I think, or <laughs> somebody like us. It was a you know funny place. And I got to work finally with with Walt Andrus when when Bob Steffek took us to the studio. We went to Walt's studio, It was the best studio in town, and uh, from most points of view, and Walt liked us. He he played us stuff like Euphoria, who were a trio avant le lettre and a really good band, and uh, they had the bass player who played on Pipeline. Um, uh, you know, it was, it was a hot place. And then there also uh, with, Wal- uh, with Walt, with uh, Walt Frank Davis, who was a he, uh, who was he and Guy Clark were the two first serious musicians in Houston that put up with me. Who didn't say you know fuck off, uh, kid. He, he, he and I have, somehow we clicked really well, and Guy as well. We Guy tried to play guitar with the Red Crayola early on. It was just Rick and I. We tried him out. We tried Freddie who was a jazz player. And, you know, we loved his aunt because the springs made a crazy noise, but we didn't You know. That was all it worked. And uh, so eventually we got to the studio with with Leland, and Leland understood the thing. He said, I think, and then he repeated exactly what we thought, which was that, you know, you have the free-form freakouts, freak-outs you have the, the familiar ugly, and they make a din, and then the songs can be woven in and out of this den.
1: But that's that's the, the beauty of that, that first album that has those freakouts that are very – 60s.
0: I got a I got a piece of mail the other day for, that somebody forwarded to me a guitar player, Tom Watson. I worked with. He found this crazy thing that said that, that Parable of the Land is the best record in the world.
1: I I don't disagree. I think it's the, the of those four records we just played. Those four are definitely up in the higher echelons.
0: We felt we had, you know, I mean, in those days, we, we were, we were quite in quite an eliminative mood as well. We, you know, like we thought in terms of avant relations to some extent, you know, coming out of some relation to arts, to the fine arts. I studied art history in school. Bartholomew studied architecture and then has has went to the painting school when they threw him out of the architecture. And his father was a very, very well known architect. His older brother Donald, a very, very fine writer, Cunningham was a l- studied linguistics, uh, you know, like with a very other uh, guy who had learned his chops in Vienna. Uh, so it was quite a hot, it was a good scene. And we had, we were afforded space because we had something to say that other people just weren't doing, but everybody was doing something. We didn't make money at it, but... We got to look in. We were very poor at the business. I must confess, we completely followed up
1: on that. I think the quote was, "We relished midnight because it meant the day was over, and you never had to live, live that motherfucking day again, and uh, not making the same album twice." You know, as Fall fans, that's one of the things we love about the Fall. They didn't make the same album twice. I mean, we could go on for a long, long time about these four albums because the magic of Corky and the pop, and and that Coconut Hotel just sounds like like 30 or 40 years ahead of where it was me and Al were in a band that made songs very similar to that in like the early 2000s
0: we were sure as enough pretentious. I mean, we—if we, you, know, you don't pretend something, nothing happens. Is what our was part of. And we thought uh, that terrible, variable and put pay to you know to all of the counterculture music that there was. And that Coconut Hotel forecast the future. And after that, what was there to do? Uh, you know, after that, I fished around for a while, and before I figured out how to make the solo, right, which I gave up music for you know, appearing there a number of times and tried other stuff. Uh, the, the those were hot times by the. Uh, Early seventies is when I met Art and Language. That's when it, that's when I got back into the music business to some extent. After having made Corky, I couldn't get anything going in New York until I met them. And we started making corrected slogans. That was the, my way out of the
1: yeah. corner. Well, I think that's a good segue because that's the next set of songs I'm going to play in a little while when you when you head over to it with Art and Language, but my background is also art, and, and I think I would kick myself if I didn't ask you about working with Robert Rauschenberg. Is, is that correct? Did you spend some time with him? When
0: I was an art history student, um, my mentor and the director of the program where I was studying art history in Houston, which was the University of St. Thomas, then we had the Dimanile family were the patrons of the department. The Dimaniles De were the slumberger oil uh, mud, and um, movers and shakers in modern art. You know, all, all who who had you know moved and shaked in, in New York, uh, who had you know in the Warhol and blah 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 the whole game. And you know, it really a fine art history department. And I thought I was fooled around in various departments. I tried to find my college. Wanted I should have gotten a job, but there was a war on. And um, like Muhammad Ali, I thought and. Uh, I don't want to go. And on the other hand, the guy started playing with Mike Driscoll. He volunteered for the Marines. He went, and they killed him. Yeah, but anyway, when I was an art history student, I was writing about Rauschenberg, and there are only about two things to find in art magazines: I a picture of him where he won the 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 Grand Prize in, in the in the Venice Biennale in '64, a picture of him. You know like george washington in, a, in a crossing the delaware in the gondola he crossed this way in some article in another magazine or so, so I, I liked his work though he had a show at the contemporary arts museum where, where donald barthony he brought people like Jay, modern jazz guitar, stuff like that so anyway there was this Rauschenberg thing and the first time i saw i saw Rauschenberg was the combine show, show of combine paintings and the one that captured my imagination most was a painting called magician I don't know if you're familiar with this one. It's, there's a, a platform and a kind of a scaffold where you could walk out and <laughs> jump to your death or uh, if you're about that big. And then there's also a little bag hanging under it, which is of gauze. and The bag has got, you, you look around for the guard what's in this bag, right? And it's uh, the mad magician. It's bottle caps. Um, but you can't quite make it out. But then you realize, oh, yes, of course, it's bottle caps. I could have seen that. I didn't. Be. It's one of those irresistible things. And that's something about what Rauschenberg does. He provokes this tactile relationship to the things that you see. Uh, and he's, he's one of those kind of people. His hands just work magic stuff all the time. So... Um, I didn't meet him for a while. you know. I mean, to jump ahead to meeting him would be 1973, which by that time I had gone to New York after Corky had failed. Bartholomew and, and I tried to, we put together a project called uh, Saddle Soar with Frank Davis. We did old Tom Clark and Pig Ankle Strut as a single. Nothing happened. It sat on the Warner Brothers A&R desk. It was the story. And they sat there for two weeks and twiddled their thumbs and finally wouldn't do it. And Walt's, Walt's Record Company, they hated a corky, they just could not stand it, and we didn't do anything. So, Bartholomew and I, our last try was a band with Rock Romano and Art Kid, and uh, the best saxophone player in Houston. I can't remember his name. What he did, and the best bass player. And Bartholomew and I was called the Rocking Blue Diamonds. And we rocked and rocked and rocked and tried. And Walt tried, brought some people to the coast to listen to us. And I wasn't singing anymore. We came and we—you know—we thought we would compete with Chicago because these guys who played Bobby Hinchin on the piano, who was a guy who wound up playing with Buddy Rich. Uh, and, and I mean there's serious players. It's, we loved weather Report and all that stuff. We listened to all that stuff Kirby Hancock and uh, uh, Wayne Shorter, Miles—all that. I mean, we were all liked all
2: kinds of music in those days. And, can, I, can I ask you a couple of questions around that? Cause Cause one that one of the um so when I when I first saw your name it would have been on the back of Grotesque, the album probably. But the, the first uh the first sort of uh bit of your music that I heard was God Bless the Red Crayola, which I think mm-hmm. the second set then on the last one it was off off that album. Um and I, I have to confess that my, my band uh, did a cover of Sherlock Holmes, probably about four or five gigs that we did, because I absolutely love that song. If you have and, a record, uh, t- uh, uh, nothing at hand, but I'll I'll try and dig something out for you, which is uh, just just by way of apology, really. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But I, I I wanted to ask what where that where that song came from because I've always been a big fan of Sherlock Holmes anyway, which is kind of why I jumped on that one.
0: But I I love that that tune. Yeah, Cunningham and I were both um, Sherlock Holmes fans. We read all of we read all of the stories. Uh, you know, I had a book this thick uh, that, had with well, my mother's book, I lost it uh, and, and paid for it um, in various ways. The but we li- read all those stuff and we loved it. we loved Sherlock Holmes and Cunningham was Cunningham was he was Stevie the magician when he was a young fellow. But we just liked it and we also we uh, we didn't work everything out. We had some ideas and we would start playing. And a lot of that record is, is was made up on the fly. And that particular tune is maybe the third take of our second or third try at something wow and, um we also had the idea we that record we made we didn't want to use reverb so there's no reverb on the record until the end of night song no reverb at all mm-hmm. what you hear is room sound and the sound of musical instruments in the in room a nice recording room in a studio good studio in houston and um but we also, instead of on the solo, you know when the guitar starts just to go down,
2: yeah.
0: starts fooling around, um, find, trying to find its way through the thing in a way to get somewhere else and to come back to the beginning. And the bass is holding the, the fort, and the drums are holding the rhythm and so like that. Instead of it being a solo, uh, we turn the guitar down. We turn uh, the whole thing down at that particular and stuff like that just broke
2: that counterintuitive me. sort of approach to production though is the first thing that jumps out with, with the album. And it's I, I think it's what lends itself a lot to things like grotesque as well, which uh which hopefully we'll have to dig into it.
0: You know, I know that those guys may have played the same song almost the same twice, you know, a couple of times. You you know you're <laughs> the same you know you heard I heard that song a minute ago, right? Yeah, it was the same one and they they had they were they had they were not afraid those guys so one of the things that also really impressed me they were it never crossed their minds to be afraid of them. why <laughs> what's there to be afraid well, of
2: i think with, with like the four of us and our, our music test is a bit like a Venn diagram there's, there's loads of overlaps but we all kind of have our own directions as well of, of stuff that we like but i think the one thing that attracts us all about the fall is that sense of danger that, that sense that at any moment it could fall
0: apart, but also the fact that they're willing to explore things as well. You know, I mean, I've been a mess a lot. When I was a kid, I, I mean, young guy starting out, I'd have dreams I'd show up at a gig. I'd have a guitar and a string made out of rubber, nothing would work like that. I still <laughs> it wouldn't stop me from going on stage.
2: Nice <laughs> to it? meet
0: you, Mr. Thompson. Yeah, um, yeah I would to hear
3: a bit about your work with um, john fahey like how did that wow. come to pass and um what happened
1: did <laughs> the design? dog actually die
0: it's 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 a short sad story in, in a way i mean we were very particular about the music that we cared for and listened to and back to the deeper we got into it the more eliminative and picky we got and when we got invited we made we made, we made coconut hotel there was a guy named Kurt Van Meyer who was an art historian for UCLA. He was in Houston writing something for the Demoneals and one a, a, a catalog intro. And we got to meet people like that. So he heard, he said, "What are you all up to?" We said, "We played in Coconut Hotel." He said, "If I could, give, if if I get you invited to the Berkeley Folk Festival, would you play that." We said something like that. Um, so he got us invited to the Berkeley Folk Festival. When we came to California, we were went to LA first, where he lived in Venice, and. There we were sitting in the house with him, and one of his mates was named Ed Denson. who was Ed, it was John Faye's partner in Tacoma Records, and we were asked, "Who would you like to meet while you're here? Would you like to meet Cap Would you like to meet uh, Jerry Garcia?" He said, yeah, "Sure, we would." And I, but to be frank with you. When we heard their first album, which we had been expecting a psychedelic record, and it did not have a psychedelic effect on, uh, for us, we should say. Um, and so maybe we wouldn't have much to talk about. Who you know, like we, who do you like? Well, we really like John Fahey. Well, Denson went, oh, <laughs> really? Um, well, I happen to know blah, 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 blah. When we went to Berkeley, by the time we got to Berkeley, Ed put us in, and installed us in his house, which was in a very nice place. And John was notified. We did this. We played. I don't know if it was after the first night. Maybe it was the first night where we played. They said we killed a dog, and I don't believe that. I just the next day after that gig, we played. We they had us because it's university, Berkeley. It should be called right. They they had us do a, a seminar in about freakout music, and there were you know the three of us and maybe Kurt von Meyer and. He recorded it, I think, and I don't know whatever happened to that tape. It would be hilarious to hear it. But then nobody was there, practically virtually, but in Stroll, John. And we were flattered to meet the great man because we really admired his music and liked him a lot. Just had a, something about him was like he was a funny guy, nice guy. He didn't lord it over us in any way. Although he was, I don't know if you know him and you know his stuff, but he's, he's an egomaniac. And uh, when I complimented him on how how good I thought the Leo Kotke record was, he claimed to have done it all and told to play. You know, fair enough. Um, Anyway, we asked him, of course, if he wanted to sit in with us. And we had an afternoon concert the next day, and he came and played with us in the afternoon. Played my 12, Rickenbacker 12 string with a microphone, finger picking, and then invited us to play, open for him at a club called the New Orleans House, where we went, it was a dinner club, we emptied the joint in ten minutes, and they gave us ten dollars to stop. And we stopped. And then we decided we should try to record this nonsense for a posterity. And so we went to Sierra Sound, where John knew people who had recorded and worked. And we recorded. Spent one evening and did four masters, master tapes, which international artists threatened not to bring us back to Texas if I didn't go get these tapes. So Bartholomew and Cunningham. Being smart, they booked and left me to go get the tapes in Frisco from the di- distributor uh, where I went, or I to take them to, distrib- to the distributor from the recordings. I was foolish. I should have just taken them four boxes and taped it and never known. Now these tapes are gone. I mean, the guy who loves John Faye, what's his name? He came to me one night and gave in Massachusetts. And says, where are the Faye tapes? Like, you know, uh, I would have had.
1: Glenn Jones from cul-de-sac or one of those guys? No,
0: I can't think of his name. He's, he's, he's a writer. I had To explain to him that you know John was doing quote unquote power thing, he was not finger picking. It was, uh, you know, you would, I'm not sure you would be able to know what he, which was bit, which bits of the noise was his or his, uh, if you're looking for authorship, you know, uh, if you want to. And I understand, I've also claimed it would be very easy to fake these things, you know, Cunningham, but I, and I have discussed it a number of times, just for jokes, say. That we would get together and make a crazy noise and take a F. faggy stuff and mix it in, and nobody would say, they would, "Who would know?" It would all yeah. be satisfied because it was not miraculous. It was fun to do. The permission was were all in place. He he was looking for trouble, so were we. Beautiful.
1: Good good evening. Good afternoon. May I? As you notice we've got people dropping in with that. Ezra oh. Al- Alistair is a is a big fan of of uh, rock and roll. And he sounds like he has a question for you. <laughs> What's your question, Al? Are you on mute? I'm yourself. You daft. Struggles with technology, does Alice?
0: Dude, I mean, you know, I can't believe how well this is going. I completely follow this
1: sort of. He's talking
0: at bits of his uh, iPhone screen.
1: We'll be on for a while. Why don't we have a list of fiery Jack while you start your technical difficulties? <laughs> Exactly. Uh, Mayo, you were in the room. What's, uh, what's your take on Fiery Jack?
0: I'm delighted to revisit it, dude. It's exhilarating music. Uh, and I don't listen to music very often, and thank you for the occasion to hear something that I I really care for. Uh, no, uh, you know, beatavis and Butthead. I mean, the Butthead's always making fun of Beavis and saying, you were moved. You know, well, I was moved.
1: Beautiful. So what's your take on Fiery Jack?
2: Oh it's been it's been so great to return to this track this week because I've just fallen in love with it all over again. It's this was this was one of the uh one of the tracks on that original cassette recording that I got off our mutual friend Christopher Jamerson and it's so deceptively simple the record the all, all the little elements of it from a from like a, a technical point of view which is I, I was cooing about this earlier on was on the WhatsApp group about like technically quite simple stuff to play but all layered together so beautifully everything comes together the the sort of um uh the uh the, the the gallop drums that that uh that sort of just tap all the way through the scratchy rhythm guitar with like those ice cream band type riffs that sort of waft in and out uh i i really think this is just such a great example of Delicate little touches all coming together and the song being great
0: and the, the number of its parts, really. I, I genuinely love this one of, things, one. of the things that I noticed is the, the drum sound, which anticipates techno and, and, and some, you know, like in terms of the frequencies and ranges and stuff that those guys were trading in. Yeah. But they were way on the high end on the hi hat stuff. And also the phrasing of the lyrics, the, the gaps and intervals, the timing of them, how the dynamic of, you know, how when he comes and when he goes. This is all, nobody thought like
1: that, when uh, me speak The pop sensibility, and this going back to, to your your stuff Particularly those, those first two albums and Corky But all the way through, the, your, your ear for a melody And we often say Mark had a way to take really rudimentary stuff And add beautiful melodies into the dissonance and the noise What's your kind of take on that? I mean,
0: when, you know, like when a settled to some extent. is mean, working in a, with a jacket guitars is kind of a straightjacket, and uh, musical conventions are you know, kinds of boxes and envelopes, and idioms and uh, modalities, and all of these kinds of things play uh, play a role in, in setting limits, I and mean, one is trying to find some way around them, or through them, or in them, you know, like without. Deliberately trying to take, to, you know, to destroy them. No fluxus strategies are involved. For example, there's no sense in which we are providing something which is, you know, like there's no pathos in what we're doing. It's uh, if there's anything, it's bathos. I would say it's ridiculous. Uh, and deliberate re- understanding of ridiculousness and nonsense, which is difficult to write. And Mark, Mark makes a nonsense of the conventions that he that he skates over. He's aware of them. He uses them. He's like a cook. He throws in this. They throw in that. The guitar players come forward. There's always this thing that's always happening. There's never the dynamics of it are alive in ways that other tunes at the time just weren't. And I saw Fall a number of times. I mean, first time I ever saw them was in the uh, some Chasberry out play some You know they had a, a lots of different bands. Buzzcocks played, did it did not it play, did it, that. No, Nothing. Buzzcocks fine band, by the way. But they threw something on Mark. He he persevered, and they were just that was pop, genuine pop. Today, bubblegum
1: pop, <laughs> maybe bubblegum uh, pop. Al- Alistair, now we've got you here. What what's your take on fiery Jack? And what was your question from earlier? If it's still relevant
4: oh right oh yeah mayo you know, you've done loads of writing um i i was just wondering like um whether or not you used a, a biro or a felt tip pen to, to write with what color or oh, do you put do you have like many different kind of colors that you like to write with question i like
0: i like to pin tail pen felt tip, black but i never carried a pen one found them in recording studios and they always turned up and um you know, one was borrow them. It was something like Columbo, you know, somebody got a pen, you know, they got a match. Uh, it's, I have a lot of pens now and lots of pencils. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of them. I do a lot of, I still do a lot of drawing. Music is sensory and, and like, part sensory, of the, yeah. yeah, so it's like part of the, the, the
4: sensory, the, the feeling of, of holding a pen, of writing something, of, of doing something or playing something and then feeling the, 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 the vibration from it. Ah, I had never
1: thought of the analogy.
0: I will think about it for a minute.
1: One one thing I would say, Mayo, uh, on that kind of thing, is Smith was uh, well known for carrying a a carrier bag of lyrics around with him and taking one out and and always knowing which one would fit to the music. Uh, What is that an approach you've uh, when you're kind of marrying words to music?
0: Always have you know lots of options and stuff like that. You know sometimes sometimes a song will be whole born. Sometimes you get a bit of music and you find some lyrics eventually. Sometimes you have lyrics and you never find anything for them. And the writing is an important part of it. You know, come out against notebooks a million times because I've got a million of them and they're full of crap, uh, largely. And I think you know some archive revenge would be to type all of it. I don't know if, you've, if you if if you're a fan of Baudelaire or not. Uh, you know, like just structurally, he's an interesting dude, crazier than hell. But I don't. I have no no wish to go in this direction, thank you, much. Uh, I'm still finding fascinating and I'm reading, you know, you read My Soul laid, laid Bare and My Heart Laid and all this kind of stuff. I think that that kind of processing is going on in the back of the mind when dealing with, you know, like what you're prepared to say and stand behind uh, and Mark, you know, everything I've ever read about Mark was he was a man who rose to the occasion, and he recognized an occasion when he saw one. He knew one when he saw it. He knew how to generate one when there wasn't one. Uh, he uh, he He knew where he was, and with you know, with whom, and for what, for what he was playing, and what was at stake all the time. I mean, you see that the top player in terms of the popularity in, in Great Britain, John Peel, uh, loved him dearly, and. Uh, you know, and Peel reciprocally hated Quayle of uh, fight off uh, microchips and fish and said so on the radio. And I called him up and braced him on it, and he was very generous about it. and uh, I'm told that later he played some uh, some other stuff from Quayle that I tried to kind of make up. and it said we would have a drink together, and I know that he's taken fallen records to the grave with him. And he, he did an enormous amount for music, nothing anybody could take him drop away. And for his tastes, they were broad enough. For the time, and he must have had uh, he must have had some feeling because the things that he latched onto that were so important to him were so diverse and desperate in some sort of way. There's nobody like the. He's not hooked on one kind of sound, is what I'm trying to get at. And he represents what I think that what I think Britain. I think of Britain. I think you got genuine pop culture there. In America, we have regional culture, pockets of this, pockets of that, still. And there are hip places, and there are less hip places, and it's just still the jungle over here. And in Britain, things are more coherent. You know, when we and I worked in the record industry, there still was one. You know, you went, we had a plugger. we had pluggers, and we, we, you know, like we went to the different uh, wholesalers and made deals for, this for the record shops and so on and so on. And working with World Trade, I learned all of that kind of stuff. And it was terrific to, to do it. And I think Martin knew that very well, the way he changed around from Step Forward, which was an, uh, an interesting, really interesting label. The, the Copeland family are an astounding crew. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, under their banner, the police, REM, and the fall, and, and many others, you, you know, they had their hands in, in so much stuff.
0: You know, I played Nubu for a while, and we were booked by FBI, Frontier Booking Institute. Yeah. Serious people.
1: I wondered if we could get to that era. So um I'm going to derail our fall showdown uh format completely and move.
0: i going to understand what the brother was saying about pins. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to think for a minute.
1: Yeah, please do. I have to think I'm going to play a couple of tracks from that era from 76 to about 82, if that's okay. okay. All right.
5: Be a good neighbor to nature, support regionalism in nature, and solve the theoretical problem
1: how one regions in another's neighborhood.
5: Be a good neighbor to nature,
3: and discover the coherence of normativity in social structure.
5: I would
1: So one of the things we say is how is how is this the same band but Mayo, Come on, like that that period, it's so radically different to what was before in terms of its the sound, um, but so wonderful, so influential. What's your what, what's your take from that era?
0: Well, that time Jesse was Jesse was gone, and um, he was playing with the Necessaries with you know like uh, Arthur Russell and uh, uh, you know and. He was beloved and, and you know, highly admired by the specials, for example. Jesse, when he played Yik, Yik they still tried to figure out his drum parts. It was, I, I, you know, When one admired them very much as well, I really, Jerry and those people were very amazing. There was good stuff going on and the whole mood was changing, though, because even they started falling apart. You remember when two of the specials went off and started a pop band, and I can't remember the name of the band. Fun, fun Boy 3,
1: fun boy three, yeah, or The Color Field or one of those. It would be Terry Howell, I imagine. Terry, yeah, you know, who
0: just passed away, correct? Yeah, sadly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was just the signal, you know, like, and the met Duran Duran, you, you played Social Soldier Talk, but we were on tour for that, tour for that thing. We got to Birmingham, and the, the only people in the audience were the Swell Maps and, and two players from Duran Duran, you know, like, and Swell Maps were well, amazing. We loved them. We loved them. Mm. And, uh, Epic and I, ultimately, Epic had, had enough of me for some reason. From one update to another, he just didn't want to know anymore. But fair enough. And uh, But I, I, I adored that band. And I wonder where Jowhead is now. I hope he's fine. And uh, Golden Cockerel. That was a, they had a really an interesting thing going. And their records were quite close. Nicky had a real pop sensibility. Nicky was the one who could write a pop song. Uh, in, in, in the manner that that, uh, that that might find some assonance, and at that time kangaroo, kangaroo was kangaroo was something like corrected slogans so with a pop sensibility applied to everything. The Perubu thing is, is is I mean, my God, what is it's Like a trash can full of incredibly strange things that do not go together very well. And uh,
4: Perubu is is a band
0: that is.
4: Been massively a big part of my life uh, since being a teenager, and I'm, I'm approaching fifty now. So, you know, like a couple of decades. How Oh my god, massively overseen band. Just like beautiful, beautiful music. They, they, they nailed it. All um, well, it's the earliest stuff that I really, really love. But Jesus wept. They've been so influential to uh, a lot of people. Like the you know, gone back to like Teardrop Explodes. Uh, you know, like the Scouse scene, like Joy Division, Ripped
0: Peruvian. You know, you know. I mean, we then we get a funny conversation about regionalism in Manchester, what it does to people's ideas about what counts as pop music and so on. You know, like New Order, also uh, Level Terror Supply. Uh, these are the interesting problems. I never had them, um, uh, and you know, I appreciated them from afar to some extent. But Ubu was a a, a, um, a force. I had the great luck to work with on two albums and a single with them and maybe a few other things i talked to david today for the first time in ages and uh, we talked on the telephone for an hour he's living in uh, near brighton and hanging in there and still performing he's coming to california in, in june i think he's working with wayne kramer and uh, you know he's He's still after it and he does not repeat himself either he's another one who just won't do the same same thing twice it's hard mm. to that out of him and uh, the way he moves is consistently interesting he has the, mo- one of the most interesting relations to languages of all the op- practitioners around i think uh, he manages to uh, uh, to do things that only people only managed in, in, in animated cartoons in the 30s with ants and uh, 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 turtles and uh, small bugs and uh, buses and all of that sort of stuff. He's 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 utterly charming for uh, for such a, a giant, a dangerous giant.
1: <laughs> it's it's beautiful. Could you so a little while ago you talked about moving to London and and maybe the art and language guys were, were what um, yeah, fired you up a little.
0: You asked about Rauschenberg, you know, to tell you quickly what happened, uh, I, I and uh, the lady I was married to at the time, she was an artist who, one of the stars of the show, Christine Kozlov. she was one of the founders, first people to make con- so-called conceptual art, and she knew these people, and through her I met the people in art and language, and the first people I, I got to know were, I, I met Mal Ramsden a bit in, the, in, the, in Berlin, New York, and in Britain I got to know Terry, uh, Michael Baldwin and Terry Atkinson, and people around them, and uh, Terry and Michael were having, always having, you know, difficulties, there was always internal uh, conflict in this organization, it was always interesting, it was the most interesting play, thing around, it was the closest in organizational structure to a to a, 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 a norm which I, I think the Red Crayola managed to sustain, which is conflict is a normal conversation, and argument uh, and uh, just, just dialogue, right, over, over how to do these things and what to do and so on, and when I got to know them, I, w- I was working for Bob and I had, was making, I tried to make music in New York and I did some work with Jeffrey Liu, who had a falsetto voice, really fantastic falsetto voice, like, like, like Skip James. And uh, uh, it was really good. We did some stuff and I had, was, had gone back to playing very, very simple guitar an acoustic guitar, which I got in Nashville. And uh, in, in a manner which anticipates to some extent what he heard in punk, just like this kind of stuff. And he would sing. And nothing was coming, nothing was happening, nothing was happening. Then I, I, I met Mel and I was invited to a party uh, and I had met Corky by this time. I was invited to a party and I got to meet Michael and Philip Pilkington from Co- from Coventry, brilliant dude. And uh, Mel got to know and talking to them and they asked, what do you do? And, and I said, send me some lyrics sometime. So. Uh, if you have a better idea for if you have a good idea, send me some lyrics and sure enough, Michael then when they went home and started thinking about it and eventually some months later passed in the beginning I got a, I got three pieces of writing from them, Ergastulum uh, and four pieces you know, a song about Northern Ireland uh, called Two Small Countries uh, which we never have successfully recorded and I'd really love to do something with that um, Mistakes of Trotsky and uh, Maybe one other thing. I can't recall offhand what the other one was. And so I I suggested this one, let's make a record. From there, we came corrected slogans. And that's how I got back into music. Because when I got to Britain, we fell out with everybody in New York. Uh, We made some stuff. We made Struggle in New York. We made Nine Ghost Conspicuous Errors when I was involved with Art and Language in New York, with Mel primarily and Ian Byrne. And when we uh, finally, Mel, and we figured out how to, Get around Joseph Cassou, who was the art and language New York guy who was in of, There was this duel between art and language in New York and art and language UK and so on, like that. And I was somehow the go between in all of these arguments and so on. I showed up one night with a letter to Mel and Ian telling me to take over distribution of art language, the journal, they looked at it and went, <coughs> they broke up laughing and died from then on with their friends and <laughs> started working together. And, uh, and from that came the end of New York art and language, the art language in New York was terminated because of that process that was started that night. And um, Mel were first booked to England back to England. And Christine and I followed in 1977. But in that time, between making, starting with corrected slogans, going to Britain in 77, that's when she and I worked for Rauschenberg from 73 through 76, 77, something like that, you know, parts of that. And went as like a general assistant and a general dog's body. And I mean, like we walked the dog, pick up the dry cleaning, and go do some shopping. Also, she had was counted because she had an eye for art. He'd say, what do you think of that? And she'd go, oh, it's cool. The name? And made a film about his work. It's in the Rauschenberg Foundation, went with him to Israel, you know, saw a lot of really saw a lot of really interesting stuff, and got to know him. He's really uh, a fine fellow. And we fell out with him because during that time, also in New York, is when I got high, heavily politicized by my association with the Congress of African Peoples with Amiri Baraka, who had the former Leroy Jones and his lady wife Mina Mina Baraka, and the Congress of African People who were on their way, who were studying, who had gone from being a black. African nationalist group to being a Maoist, Maoist Marxist Leninist group and I was involved with those people for a while and as a function of all of that stuff fell out with practically everybody in New York and so we booked to England and when I got to England I fell out with art and language so I had to get back in the music business and that's when Jesse came back into it who had been working on corrected slogans I said Jesse come we'll start the red Cray all over again and I got to deal with radar blah 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 blah, blah. That's how that whole business starts. And that's 70 that brings us to 78, 79, when we started banned again.
1: Ezra, if I'm correct, this kind of idea of Mayo's uh politicization and the explicit kind of uh, uh politics in, in the stuff from the mid to late seventies. Got a question on that?
3: First of all, maybe a statement. I really enjoy the political content of all the Red Crayola stuff that I've heard um I thought the gross and conspicuous errors video that Brendan shared was a marvelous hoot I, I would never say I would never describe myself as a communist as such but I'm certainly happy to say that my politics are extremely left of center and yeah I I was just I guess curious about the evolution of your um
0: political ideas. I mean, why they went away or changed or something like that. Did they go away? I'm not sure if they did or not. Transformed by my experience of, you know, like of people in the communist movement, the capital C communist movement. And I never had a card uh, and never belonged to it. I never saw an organization that I could figure in. And when I joined, it was highly sectarian. Maoists would not talk to, to to anybody else except Maoists. And the last party that the Albanian Communist Party would talk to were an a strange group in New Zealand, and and it had gotten that sectarian. It got that sectarian during the time that I was involved. It was already that way, and. There were things that Trotsky said that made sense to me. There were things that, you know, I liked Lenin, a lot, a lot of that kind of stuff. Stalin, I even dared admire to some extent because I was really in a very strangely eliminative mood. I, I thought this is U.S. in 1970s, late 70s, after, you know, the end of Carter, the, the, the fuel crisis, the, the, the inevitability of Reagan, uh, all of that kind of stuff. One felt a little edgy. And this and all this stuff is back now but I, I would still say I claim I think communist ideas where they prevail you find them in communities people live with each other and cooperate and and organize around these ideas still and I still have to hold some of the things I read Marx I think hold water uh, and I would describe myself these days more as an anarcho-syndicalist you know uh, I do what I can do when I can do something and I'm willing, I'm willing to syndicalize if something comes along that that, that catches my imagination or that wants me and needs me bad enough and I'm forced by force manure or force majeure to do something about something, I will. Uh, right now, I'm plain sailing, for me, this country is going mad. Uh, you know, Britain-Brexit, I, I mean, good Lord, I don't know what happened there. I, there was always an anti-European sentiment in in, in and when we arrived, there it was it was rampant. But people still managed to make things go do. Uh, and I don't know. I watched a lot of that stuff fall apart. The the revolutionary movement. The things that happened to the to those people in the United States. I don't know what happened to Miriam Baraka. I mean, I know he wrote well, and I know that he continued to influence people. Harmony Holiday these days. I don't know if you know her writing. There are lots of people still around. This these ideas. I mean, they're not gone. And. I, I see him on MSNBC. There's a there's a, there's a guy, a, a lawyer who has a show every afternoon. And This guy's he's read Karl Marx. I have a sneaking suspicion, and uh, it's understood that we have state monopoly of, of violence here, and that you know understand, and we have uh, we have Hobbes prevails. We have a civil war. Uh, fear dominates. Uh, we say the Republican Party is, is described by this fear of everything is being displaced, replaced. They say we don't want to replace you. We just want you to fuck off with this crap ideas. You know, and you know, I, I I know somebody who lives in San Francisco who worked for Google and who has got in deep trouble because somebody on his crew he said, "Don't tell me you are a fucking Christian." Uh, you know, stuff. And I have sentiment with this, although I have some strong, I have some. Sympathy for people, people who believe in things I don't happen to, but I, you know, I, you know, people do what they can. Good luck to everybody. It's a big world, big town, room for more than one idea.
3: Yeah. one thing that's um, bringing this back to the fall. One thing that's always been fascinating to me is Marquis Smith's relationship to politics, because well, through his lyrics, you get a real strong sense of class consciousness, oh, yeah, and But then when he's interviewed, you know, he'll be slagging off like Gang of Four. He'll be bragging about voting conservative. And I've always thought that was a real interesting dichotomy. The
0: thing is, uh, he's, they're they're Rambogums. I mean, I mean, Vaudelaire comes again to mind, you know, like a a person who's not afraid of contradictions and understands that one operates with more than one system of beliefs in order to get through the course of a day, you know, Uh, and and Mark knows when, knew when. And also, Britain is full of interesting conservatives. And, uh, you know, I can't help it. I'm sorry, you know, I'm Eric Clapton notwithstanding. Uh, it's just that's the way it works. You know, sometimes you find something that doesn't necessarily belong, it doesn't fit, the, you know, like some holistic picture. Of the universe is painted by this or that set of interests, or the uh, you know that lunatic <laughs> who's able to lead. Uh, I mean, we have. Uh, I heard some somebody, some Christian, that they finally refer to Trump as the Antichrist. It's taken a while, but it's out there. The sentiment is out there. And,
1: so, on that bombshell, shall we? Hmm. How about we play City Hobgoblins and have a little bit of a chat about that one? Are you okay for time, Mayon? You good? I'm fine.
0: Listen, this, this is the most fun I've had all day. And
1: that's Excellent. not true. I mean, second <laughs> second most fun. It's
0: a lot of fun. It's going fine. It's fun. I'm
1: eating muesli. I'm having a lot of fun. What is he eating? Well, what is Flakes. Keep regular, I hope. <laughs> is that Britain? He's in Wigan. He's in Wigan, Timmy. Eh? Have you ever heard of a town <laughs> called Wigan?
4: My God. Wigan Pier. Oh, my God. Oh, Fucking Wigan muesli <laughs> So yeah, George Orwell Don't read about <laughs> it
1: That's where Phil and Nala are, they're in Wigan uh, they're, they're the proletariat I mean, I mean uh, as we're over in there uh... You think it's
5: the pipes But it turns out!
0: When the police roll up and say, hello, 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 what's going on here?
1: Indeed. What's your take on the City Hub Goblins man?
0: You know, he knows how to throw a party and uh, he knows who to invite. It's, you know, and what to say when they get there. I mean, it's a bit raucous, I must say. The mix is is a bit raucous and I would do it slightly different. I I might take down that guitar that comes surging forward which drove him up into a vocal register which is like, that's up there. And uh, I might give him a more American mix, you know, like bring more Frankie Sinatra. might bring him more forward this time so that you can actually uh, make sense of what he's trying to tell you. That's the one thing I would say against that mix. Uh, but the energy is there. The energy is there. And perhaps if you have it on this, if you can fool around with the EQ, u 2 EQ is, is variable. When I got with Drag City, they had this thing about lo-fi, lo- fi, right? That was one of our first discussions. What is lo-fi uh, and tell us uh, about fidelity i says there is no such thing as fidelity you know there are there are definitely many recording playback devices and every one of them sounds different you know give it up and just having fun they knew that they're fun to work with you ever talk to them catch them sometime I- i'll recommend that they should get in touch with you
1: that would be delightful yeah i mean we're we
0: they have an incredible catalog
1: oh i mean we'll get you. We we'll get to drag city because for someone to be uh, that influential in not one, not two, but three. Uh, so whether you call it the late sixties psychedelic scene, the post punk of the late seventies, and then the the kind of post rock uh, drag city stuff of the mid nineties, like, that's my life. Throw in a little bit of Happy Mondays, <laughs> maybe, but we things in common. <laughs> um, city of Goblins Al.
4: But at the moment they're going to be relegated for the football league. It's looking very, very, very bad for, for, for
0: Rochdale FC. No, I, I I I liked it there, and I also liked one of the things that that Mark and I had in common was we both like Man City as opposed to Man United, and um, uh, at least he professed to, and I, that may have been just to be obstinate, and and I don't know if he thought that highly of Manchester but I think that, you know, big city hub goblins may be something, you know, there are two ways of interpreting it. He's either, you know, conjures them uh, or sees them in the city or he conjures them uh, in his own mind and they haunt him because he has always to go to the big city and uh, big city hub goblins are always after him to do this, that and the other thing. Uh, maybe it's a tiny bit of a complaint. I don't know. I think, I think the, the, the big city that he's referring to, though, is Manchester because
4: it does refer to... Uh... Queen Victoria being a big black slug in uh, Lancashire, uh, and that's like uh, th- th- there's a, a, a statue of Queen Victoria in Piccadilly, uh, which does look like a big black slug, and
0: uh, it's, it's quite amusing. Uh, he, I mean that's the other thing about him. This guy's widely read. I'm deeply superficial. Uh, he's he, he's informed. You know, like I, I I'm not so diligent about detail.
1: When when we say that uh, you produce this what 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 does that look like what does that i know that's it a just, very vague it, question does that look like in the it, studio those
0: days recording studios i could still sit down at a desk and do things would, although corrective slogans was recorded in, in a studio behind blenheim palace where they had the four which they were working on the machine that became the first computerized desk with a, a, a total recall and uh, but I could still work a desk in those days because they were not that complicated. Um, which um, Jeff and I, that's what cemented the, the relation with Jeff and I. On a production level, we got offered gigs. People would say, would you come and produce a gig? We didn't know. We, that meant, please come with us to the studio and make it happen. You know, okay, I know how to make things happen. Uh, having you know, had a band and had it work in the street, <clears throat> or had to work in a club or something like that. You can learn how to make things happen. And studios never intimidated me. I was like, liked this kind of places to work. And we did raincoats in in, in Cambridge. Did stiff little fingers in Cambridge. Same studio the Mecons, we recorded their first singles in, and, and sat at the desk and did the mixes ourselves, and did the same thing with with the Fall. So we were not afraid of making mistakes and we did make a number of them and that the mix there is, a, is a, i apologize at some sort of level if it makes your ears hurt and you have to listen very deeply to hear the words
2: mayor um, when you when you were talking before about if you if you had a second bite of the cherry on the production you talked about uh, an american style like a frank sinatra in opera mezzi's uh, presence in the in the vocal mix Wait, did he remind you of anybody uh, Matthew Smith, when you when you work with it, does it do his sort of vocal style remind you of anyone, or his dynamics? Because we we've mentioned some people like Serge Gainsbourg, you know, for his sort of cabaret on the edge kind of thing, or people like mm-hmm. James Brown for his like band-leading kind of mentality. Uh,
0: in, in a blues context, uh, what's his name from Chicago, the wild guitar player who not afraid to bend the lyrics out of shape. No, I, I can't think of I can't think of anybody who comes. That's in his neighborhood. He's a, he's a unicum to me. I never heard anything like that. And, and uh, he, he, I hear you, for example, in the tune um, We were Living with Fiery Jack, he's out of key. He's, he sings flat, right? And nice. Do you still have such a thing?
5: Yeah.
0: Oh, and Corky's is a mess. I'm out of tune a lot of the times. But Frank Davis said that I had a, a unique voice, that I sing chords, is what he said. And uh, <laughs> my wife tells me, no, you're just out of cute tune. Uh, but that's that's part of the charm, you know. So I'm not the person to ask about you know, like refined musical. I respect Sinatra's uh, phrasing and timing and, and uh, his ability to actually make a song into a narrative. Uh, um, um, but that's the end of my respect there. And um, but Mark is, is you know, Mark is a, is, a, is a full full fledged being. Shall we say he's not just a disembodied voice. He when you when the music is there and he's in the pre- his presence enlivens the space that you're in in a way that nobody else's voice that I know of does that. And uh, without hectoring, and he doesn't hector. He's got an edge on him.
1: Yeah, uh, Ezra, if I bring you in there, what's your thoughts on the City hobgoblins
0: Goblins? Yeah. It's-
3: absolutely fantastic um i gotta say I, I haven't had as much time to get into things as i would have liked because i have a very small baby in the next <laughs> room that's just been delivered to my home How um, is your... he, he's about um
0: 10 days wow congratulations thank you very oh, much my daughter my daughter, uh, uh, my daughter herself six months old now i'm a grandfather congratulations Excellent. right back at you <laughs> that's nice So. No, I mean music. My mother claimed to have played Mozart at me when I was a kid, which probably explained why it took me a long time to come back to it.
3: <laughs>
0: well, so far
3: he's listened to a lot of um, your music. Oh, I
0: hope you'll be all right. Because
3: right. I've been listening <laughs> for this podcast, and um, yeah, a bit of the fall and a bit of Raymond Scott is is what he's had. Oh, so Raymond
4: well. Scott, soothing saying for babies, nice. soothing saying
3: for babies, sweet. Exactly.
1: Good record. <laughs> but, you know, matters at hand. You're, we love you, we respect you, Ezra, and we, we're thankful. But what we really need to know is what do you think of City Hog Oh, yeah.
3: 10 times my age, one tenth my height. Uh, what, a, what an amazing line. It's just perfect. And yeah, it, it does seem like there's some kind of football chicanery going on there. Some dark psychology. Indeed. Dark, dark psychology. Yeah, it, it's it's a great example of their early stuff. It's a pulverizing punch to the kidneys, and I really like it. And that's all I think I can say.
1: Beautiful. That is plenty. It, it, with your uh, with your permission, may I'd like to play a selection from maybe night from from the eighties when you seem to have a strong connection to Germany. Maybe we can get in into that.
0: I did live there for a while.
1: Okay. Well, let's have a listen, and then we'll see. We'll see what transpires from.
0: Remake of the Yes from Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
5: <laughs>
4: Also made of wood. A white block of
5: plastic serves as a table between the Turkish cushions. The roomy shelves to the left with books and a
4: TV set are accessible from both sides.
5: The gable side is made completely of glass and affords a full.
1: We heard there, and it got a bit funky at times, didn't it? We got we heard the Agastelum from the three songs on the trip to the USA, which was 83. Das Apartment from Ludwig's Law that you did with Nebius and Connie Plank. Bind blown again. Uh, the Black Snakes, 83. Uh parents got crossed from Baby and Child Care, which I, I only came out a few years ago, but I think was recorded.
0: Thanks. It was meant to be the sequel to Black Snakes.
1: Mm, very funky stuff indeed and then finally from that period we, we had a uh, francis von assisi from the malefactor 80 from 89 mm. um yeah what uh, in between that you also produced primal That's scream's right. first album and and that felt record what what's your takeaway from that period left
0: england because i had burned my bridges in england by 87 uh, after running label for trade, marketing the smiths working with Garrick jarman and blah, 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 all that stuff.
4: The <laughs> uh, Primal Scream LP Sonic Flower Groove. Yes. Yeah, that's, 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 some, that's some nice, like, jangly stuff going on in uh, there. I had fun
0: working with those guys. I had a lot of fun. We worked the studio, I can't remember. Pat Sawyer. With, I worked with Lawrence as well for, for, for Alan McGee.
1: Mm, and creation, yeah.
0: Eventually, I ran out of wiggle room in England and I had to book. So I went to Germany and there I started working with Albert Oden and Werner Butner, and two painters. But Albert Werner was a poet and a painter, and uh, Albert is a painter and a musician, and all around strange, funny guy. And also, one encounter, one realized that the German take on rock and roll was really something fresh compared to what one was familiar with in Britain or familiar with in America that their understanding of it was you know like Albert Albert had an immediate understanding of the nonsensical aspect of it and that that there is that there's a, a push and a pull and it pulls you in and it's wonderful you love it and so on but you know it's also miserable it's the abortion of every fucking thing on earth so you push it away at the same time right so there's there's love hate there's there's, there's you know the celebration and destruction there's there's you know, there's the, the twin forces are clashing in there. Things get, get fun and things and all of the old cliches are reborn at some sort of level for me. And I also had ceased being afraid of singing by that time. Uh, I, I started to sing again and uh, was having fun with it. It, it. And Connie and had recorded some So I had the band together with Gina Birch and... Uh, Linda, German bass player, killer bass player, and Conrad Mathieu and Jesse Chamberlain. We had a, a fake disco band going in Dusseldorf trying to get a gig, trying to get a deal with Elektra Records. And it wasn't happening. And, uh, but while I was, we were doing this kind of stuff, I had a gig at Thingston at, uh, and Force where Mubius ran a little festival on Pentecost. Right? And for some reason, he liked me. We sat and smoked a pack of cigarettes together one day. And he then he and Connie would make a record every year for a label in Hamburg called Star Records. They'd done 10 of them in a row. They decided they wanted to do something with vocals for a change. They were all instrumental records, in So they called me and asked me if I would do some vocals, if I, if I would come write some lyrics and do some vocals. So I went to Connie's studio and uh, sat there with them and, and tried a few lyrics. But I, I didn't want to sing against that music, finally. But I had this book by Albert Erlen and Werner Butner called Angst for Nice about the anxiety of being of, of the ghost with trying of being compelled to be nice to people and so <laughs> this this book I started reading selections out of there but you know like and universal stuff about you know apartments and girlfriends and you know like where you're gonna have lunch and uh, you know like what did you eat yesterday and you know like about the garbage you're gonna come pick up stuff and Connie and and movie and the three of us you know like we just sat there for days and it was crazy it was just we had a lot of fun doing it. And then sent the record to Star Records in Hamburg, and they refused to print it. They hated it. So they made an, in- they made an instrumental version and took it to South America, where Connie came down with lung cancer or first manifested itself there. And he came back to... And the, I was not invited because it was sponsored by the Goethe Institute. They were not going to do the vocals anyway. So that whole thing, that whole project just went down the thing. But that that record still exists. And I think it's got some funny, funny stuff on it. I really like it. And I also like then also at the same time that that was happening and before that even i had made this albert and werner and i had gone to the studio with matthias schultz we a band called geistafara which geistafara is what you call a guy who drives the wrong way on the motorway <laughs> and this guy this guy had a little recording studio so we went in there and recorded a, a whole bunch of tunes and, and then later albert and werner it didn't work out somehow. So Albert and I took the material and we started working with Andreas Doral, who had a single called "Fred from Jupiter." Had a big success with this, and we we were making a record. He, went, he had a band, an Australian band that he liked, and we were making a record by listening on the headphones to what they were doing and playing along something else with it. And I played some drum tracks on on a couple of on one thing, and you know, some crazy shit was going on. Anyway. From that, we got this music that, we, that Albert and I later incorporated, and that's where this "Franz von Assisi" comes from. And the joke is on Dylan, uh, uh, you know, bless his heart. Um, Your future looks so beautiful. And, Your future will be fan, Your future will be look like mine? You know, and uh, you know, construct a better stupidity than this if you can. And it was just fun, you know, just with the, with the fact that all meaning had gone out of everything it was arbitrary. There was no longer a tradition of moon jeans, throwing love songs of, you know, the Beatles had liquidated all that territory, The you know, all the bad boy stuff was, you know, was handled adequately by the Rolling Stones and um, by heavy metal in general, uh, napalm death on up or on down or however you want to go. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was making music and having fun with the damn idea of doing it. Plus it was also, it also had to do with that, keep alive the idea of do it yourself. And by that time, I was, it was plain that we were not going to get a deal with an electric
2: We introduced one of our friends to your stuff this week, uh, our friend Invisible Joe, And when he was first listening to your stuff, he, he wondered whether the uh, the Canterbury scene was something that might have uh, been an influence on Robert Wyatt at all. Uh.
0: In Houston, uh, we had the music hall and bands came through. When Hendrix came, went. And the openers were soft machine. And... Um, okay. the drums were set up in front of the curtain because everything for jimmy had a big stack and everything was behind him right deal. Yeah. anyway out came robert white in a pair of black skivvies nothing else and sat down with the drums and started playing did it again did it again and then airs came on with a guitar and then out of the orchestra pit came mike rutherford with a big cape on and a big black hat and playing on the keyboard that belonged to the, to the music and they had a really good light show and so you know and one just fell in love with soft machine which you know their, that first album i love i still think it's a great record and uh when i moved to england i got to meet the guy because he knew i mean they're, they're rough trade jeff rough trade was a real hug i met you know, Lynn Kwesi Johnson in there. I met, you know, Johnny Rotten. I met a lot of people in that place. You were saying before about solidarity, though, isn't it? I know we, we've we all
2: been involved in different music scenes ourselves, and it's
4: Lyndon Kwesi Johnson, though, yeah. But they ain't got nothing in them. The thing is,
0: it was also African music was heavily playable. I mean, it was the one time where the front line and the punk scene and the new wave scene, is also that there was some sort of, you know, at least ostensible, ostensive, I should say, uh, uh, connection between all of these things is, is a kind of a spirit. They all helped each other. There was a sense of community amongst all of those people, whether there was really anything to it or not. I don't know. I worked at Rough Trade and when somebody would be sent from BBC or ITV to question Rough Trade, I would be dispatched to talk to them. They would say things like, what are you going to do when Rough Trade gets to be a big record company? And I would say, we are a big record company. We just don't have a million pound, a million pound a month, you know, service debt like virgin do what are you talking about <laughs> that so rough trade was a business a serious business and a lot of money made there when the, uh, and the cartel it was all extremely flimsy, as we see it was a paper thing as soon as one one brick went the whole thing collapsed with cartel being the distribution company yeah cartel
4: was you know yeah. was, was 4 ad it, it was a big independent sort of like scene word like a bunch of indies like club together and that's how you got the indie charts at the time
0: sometimes you know but there were, but there were so many things going on you know like Jeff had Rough Trade Jeff also mm. had Blind Negro through Warner Brothers, he had you know like Blue Guitar through uh, Chrysalis, the, the, the distribution there were at least two or three levels of independent music uh, and the distribution if you sold a thousand records you were really doing something in, in those days and other people like the Smiths were, were selling lots of records and they were being licensed by sire. And the,
4: the licensing thing was a big thing where it was like, you could go like, yeah, I'm on an indie uh, in this country. But in America, you're not. You, you, you're on a, you, basically, you're being distributed by a manager. You're
1: talking about sellouts now, aren't you? Sellouts! <laughs> you, know,
0: you know, I mean, when I signed to Radar Records, Radar Records was a Warner Brothers, put, you know, it floated 3 million quid at Elvis Costello and Jake Riviera and Seiko started a record label. Andrew Lauder and Martin Davis, who had been running UA, and with uh, with Stranglers and uh, Buzzcocks, they came over and ran Radar, and then Radar had an ambitious re-release program. So you're getting into sort of like Charlie Chaplin, like people that, that like United Artists. Chaplin, when he says, when I want to know what to do in Hollywood, I bend over. I mean a socialist from Britain When he comes to America and they treat him like that Give me a break
1: <laughs> If it's okay I'm going to play the last of the Three, four songs we'll talk about tonight Which is going to be uh, how I wrote Elastic Man So if we have a little bit of a listen Is that okay? Are we still good?
0: This is Absolutely, I love this
1: talking about a sides and b sides if there was ever an a side this is it now what what do you what do you make of how i wrote elastic man I i
0: mean there you hear how how musically adept and how musically interesting and innovative he is and the band is they have what do you we call it? a traditional sort of classic rockabilly basic but the way the vocal comes in and the and the tempo that he sings it as and the cadence that he's singing in is nah, 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 as it goes against it and this it is it's a two beat that is turned into transformed by the vocal and then the chorus is i guess it's, it's, it's some kind of payoff but for me the real payoff is when he starts singing is, is the verses that's that's the you know, the hook is in the, the content not the the, the sentiment the encapsulated. He his rep, his understanding of repetition is also unique. He's 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 the one person that I've ever worked with who's made me think about repetition. And my, I know that one of the weaknesses of my music is that I could, I don't repeat it very long. I'm really good at writing a minute one minute tunes, two minute tunes, you know, four minutes. I'm in, I'm getting on shaky ground, so on like that. And it's, it's not until like 2000 blues hollers and hellos I finally break the spell with this one tune that's 13 minutes long he is the man who challenged me about repetition and made me actually you know go so far as to theorize to try not theorize but to explain what what repetition in music could consist in and the most simple example would be to pick some minimalist piece of stuff or some techno piece of music and you know and to describe how often you get to hear something in the time interval and when your ability to check and say yes it's the same as this and you got to hear you got to hear at least three before you know that you're you know you really got to repetition. You hear two, you think, ah, is it the same one? And you hear three, oh maybe they all are the same. And then you hear will there be another one? Ah yes there's another one. Are they all the same and then was the distance between them exactly the same. Was it all that? and he's the man who provokes this kind of thinking. He he's a he's he's an in depth provocateur for me. He revised the way I thought about lyrics as well. You know, this talking thing, which I, I use in the Connie Plank record, right? And also the other source for that, though, is John Cale, uh, The Gift, yep. The Velvets.
1: Yeah. Beautiful stuff. Indeed. Uh, Phil, what's, uh, what's your take on the, this one? We've talked about this one on the show before. These guys, it's not a surprise that they like it. But to just give us, you three, give us your, your thoughts on this in a couple of sentences, Phil.
2: I, I think the thing that jumped out for me when we, uh, when we did this one on the podcast was that um, it, it's, again, it's one of them really deceptively simple songs. I, I In my head, I thought I knew how to play this song without picking the guitar up. And then when I picked the guitar up, it really surprised me just, just how interesting, the, how, how complex some of the ideas are that are going on in it um and i i think the, the the finish on the production is kind of what really ties the
0: room together with it the last sort of straight team totally wired it, it represents some sort of like resort to extreme means and you know like it's a, a strangely biographical detail uh, revelatory uh, about the the person and the psychology rather than a reference to the world you know and puka block uh, is you know the B side <laughs> to this problem, right? And I think you know is it where it was where Mark starts to go off, and he starts to wonder what you know, like what what else is there. Now I think it's the end of the end of the of the, of the you know Marky Smith as the, the hero of the anti-hero, if you like, perhaps even to some that, some strong extent, the guy who. You know the top and pop, top of the pops never tamed him never you know could not contain him uh, that the man who transcended the categories of british pop and still had success uh, on a grand scale everybody knew what he was thinking because it was forceful thought and i think that after that you know like hey giuliani and these things are wonderfully strange items uh, strange cultural artifacts bizarre bizarre
1: while you bring that up me and phil have actually been trying to put together a script to put Luciani on has not been performed since 86 and we're trying to put it on.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: oh, what, uh, what's your take on Curious Orange and Luciani? Did you have much knowledge of it or? No, I, I
0: didn't. You know, like I tried to understand it. Is it pro or contra of the pope, papacy and the Pope and so on? Like that makes me think of Lee Perry and, you know, <laughs> baffling back, smoke signals in Vatican City, baffling smoke signals in the City of Iniquity. Uh, the Pope is dead. Long live the Pope! You know, <laughs> Mark Bishop Marchenko's, uh, the whole, the the, the Blackfriars Bridge episode, uh, all of this stuff. Yeah, this is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating stuff yeah. It's, yeah, it's, uh, And. And that Mark chooses to, to, you know, to involve himself as a kind of a social commentator at that level, in, in an official sort of sort of way, talking about something that good Christians know about and all sorts of people know about, and you know, like not just the people who like pop music and weird music or whatever it was like that. And I just think, and then not long, not long, long later, I think comes as he gets married to Bricks and the band goes pop, and he's it's like Beefheart a little tiny bit as well. There's some of this sort of uh, arc, if you like, where. The early band is mad and uh, and, and before tames them and makes them do something that they didn't even know. They didn't know what they were doing, but they did it anyway. And <laughs> something like that. And then he makes Lick My decals and Spotlight Kid, uh, you know, pure pop records. And I think that, you know, Mark understood also that he wanted to experiment in pop and not have that sound also. I think he wanted to change his sound. I
1: think so. Um... I don't know. We'll, we'll see where it goes. We'll let you know if we put a performance. You know,
0: if you do get it together and you want to make a film of it, let me know. I mean, I really think that would be
1: <laughs> beautiful. Look, Alistair's excited already. Alistair, what did you think of uh, how I wrote last?
0: Uh, well, yeah,
4: it's dead seeds, isn't it? It's like the keyboard. It really reminds me of stuff like Rolling Machine, it's better than um, Totally Wired. <laughs> <laughs> but see, I think it's some more musical. Like Totally Wired's a bit kind of like
0: kind of loose, but it's bloody brilliant. I love it. I quite agree across the board, and I think perhaps of the, the beauty of, of totally wired is that it is it is a kind of you know like crazy uh, it's, and it's suicidal in some sort of level uh, the suicide for the band you know the band is over long live the band.
1: <laughs> Ezra, Ezra, you got you got some uh, words of wisdom on the Elastic Man.
3: Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the the, the opening guitar sound is just so uniquely piercing and serrating and unpleasant yet marvelous at the same time. I mean, I do wonder if it was the fall that kind of pioneered that kind of uniquely irritating guitar sound. Um and yeah, you know, I completely uh get what was being said about the the repetition uh aspect of it. For me, like uh you know I I understood that I loved repetition in music when I came across the first Neu album um, when I was in my teenage years. And at the time, that was just the greatest thing I'd ever heard. And it still is one of the greatest things I've ever heard. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, what I think is marvellous about the fall at this stage, and they kind of, you know, they kind of kept with it for sure. But for me, yeah, the the music is repetitious. But as, as Mayo was saying, like, Smith just completely inhabits that space and and, you know the phrasing and the the like the way he comes in and comes out it just it's what always kind of really makes the track for me and so yeah you know i think and this one i think is a marvelous example of that yeah
0: the world he opens, I mean, he opens up the world and you're lucky like, when it comes
1: to life. With your permission, it was still okay for the last five minutes or so before we we fare goodbyes. I'd like to play some tracks from uh the 90s onwards, your are the, the drag city kind of era, a place where probably I first encountered your work. I think the first thing I ever heard was um Spaceman 3's cover of Transparent Radiation, and uh, obviously Pete Kember, who uh Sonic Boom, he he remastered uh, the first couple of or albums as well, well we, brendan i never realized that was a cover
0: <laughs> most people don't know that he's i'm i'm talking to these two, to paul drummond who is a working as a freelancer trying they're trying to get charlie records together who own all the rights to all that old stuff that pete gets to work on but i think the spaceman 3 was a, a wonderful that their version of the transparent is brilliant
1: yeah, it was wonderful, and that's what set me off. I think I bought the second album first, and then went through the early stuff, and then went and at a similar era when you start getting involved with Dave Grubbs and and this stuff we're going to hear now. Yes,
0: Greg Barker, you're not, Corky, the first man to put it out Corky again, Glass Records. Yeah,
1: yeah, specimen three, my
4: favorite band from rugby. I'd like to to hear suggestions on on, on others. Yeah, you like Spiritualized. Oh yeah. oh yeah, yeah, well there's experimental audio research. You know, some the stuff that Sonic Boom did was it was pretty fucking cool. Um and he's, he's I think he's done some stuff with Stereo Lab recently or something like that.
1: He's working with Panda Burr at Animal Collective. That, that's the one, right?
4: that's the bugger. and that stuff is good.
1: It's good. But the Jason Spaceman or the Life from Spiritualized, he covered the Red Crayola like 67 live was this kind of like weird piece did you ever come across that
0: i'm really out of touch i, I swear you know i'm, I'm i don't too much i listen to classical music mostly these days. yeah
1: i hadn't heard it till this week but basically him and the guy from spring hill jack had did it, like a cover of that 67 live would cover in it in you know wow. i'm gonna
0: hear that I'm yeah hear.
1: i'll send you the link it's on youtube it's um it's it's really nice it's but it's them you know,
0: yeah, link me up with anything that you think that, that, that I, I should, that it would be fun to hear. I would Absolutely.
1: appreciate it. Alright, let's have a listen to some of those uh, Chicago era if we can call it
4: that. Mm-hmm. I
0: want more danger on the lawn I want more red on the green I want an ass Green and black. I want more green on red.
5: I want to kiss your here. I want to lick my heart in my bed.
0: The situation
1: Track of um, the self-titled album '94, pessimisticity uh, Another song, another Satan, off Hazel from '96. Come on down, off finger painting '99. Uh, Note to self, introduction '2006. Laughing at the foot of the cross, off size trapped by liars. And uh, finally, portrait of John Wayne from '2010, um, five American portraits. Uh, it's beautiful, beautiful stuff. Mayo, what what was going on here, and what what did you take from this era?
0: Uh, I was out of music, uh, sitting in Germany, hanging out in the art world and writing. Uh, David Grubbs got in touch with me and asked me what I was doing, and I told him, and uh, he asked me if I had any music, and at one point and I did have some stuff. We did a few, played a couple of times, a few gigs, small gig things in Germany, and then I took he took this demo that I had, I had some tunes, and he took it back to Drag City and he said, "I have some friends in Chicago who play it. Instead of you going to Warner Brothers or wherever and doing the usual game of getting a, an advance and they make a record, that number and then say, and, you know, like blah blah blah, this is a real label." Bubble, man. So I got to talking to this to this guy, to Dan Koretsky. I went to Texas to visit my mother over Christmas, and then Koretsky and I talked on the phone for two days, and he convinced me that he could run, that he was running a, a, an independent label, but it was a serious business and that they, that he and, he, and he, his seriousness convinced me that I you know, like I wouldn't be wasting his time or mine so I got to work with all those Chicago musicians here I come again that's David Grubb singing he wrote that. Yeah, yeah. yeah and uh, it, it, the lyric comes from lyrics that I did with Albert Werner and Werner in a book that I did with them and it just the band just opened up and the drummers John McIntyre so i have you know like two of the hottest parts of gastro del and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. to play uh, to work with and then and worked out Al- that album was mixed make- was recorded in Albini's studio and mixed in the studio, the, the red of the eponymous album and um and it was just a. Fr- it was fresh, and one was able to revisit very basic things again, quite in the manner of when when, when punk got rolling, and things, basic, something you dare to call basic riffs, basic cliches, basic ideas, and that is that persists in in one measure or another. Where Size Trap by laborers, Liars has got a certain Bossa Nova aspect, Bossa aspect to it, and, uh, and Five American portraits is. Is a rehash of American cliches from Dixie to you know uh, you know eyes of Texas are upon you and uh, you know and. Also, Mozart, the one the t- on that tune, one that's really cool, the Ad Reinhardt tune, that's Mozart's piano concerto.
2: Can I can I ask you about the Portraits album? Because I, I got a real vibe of Charles Ives about it. And I, I, I wondered whether um, you were, because you mentioned about listening to more sort of concert music nowadays.
0: I mean, the, the guys, those fellows in Argan language, Mel and Michael wrote those lyrics. And they're, they're descriptions of paintings that they were making, which is, you know, like, rather than, uh, uh the you know he's of this kind of that kind of guy talked about where the hair went and they even wrote me one for trump which i didn't want i will not publicize that for um uh, but it had a beautiful first line you know like a uh, uh, shock of piss colored the pl- the piano player in there i got in it was a studio in london the russians had just invaded the crimea and we were trying to record a studio the went in there i said do you know anybody who can play mozart and I had this Mozart book, and they said, "Oh yeah." And they got me one of the piano players, Tom Rogerson, out of Three Tame Tigers, and who he a he plays like crazy. So I, you know, I had I have had the luck always to be able to work with good. Musicians. I'm not a very good musician in the technical sense myself. I know a German free jazz player named Rudiger Karl who one time said to me in German, "It was charming." and that means mayo your uh, sloppiness i find it interesting and so i
2: was i was thinking it's more important to enjoy yourself <laughs> oh, I anyway mean, they uh, even
0: pay me for this stuff sometimes it's quite okay and the thing is uh, <laughs> The 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 finger painting record, for example, is a remake of Parable of Arable Land. Time wise, exactly, it starts with a free form freakout. It goes to a song, and instead of the songs that got onto the first album, like Parable of Arable, onto Parable, like Hurricane and whatever, it's all the songs that didn't make it onto, like Mother and Wild uh, mm-hmm. Grass and My Baby's Roof, and uh, so on. And but the structure is exactly the same. So the idea was finally, they gave it to O'Rourke. And O'Rourke gave me a mix of it that I just didn't like I couldn't hear it I didn't know what to do with it and it finally sat so we brought it out with the original mix and then later O'Rourke went and I heard I heard O'Rourke's mix, and I realized how great it was so now I've got three records which you can play all together one over the other I can play parable of arable land I can overdub and play at the same time finger painting and finger pointing the three records because they are they're in sync so I just, um, now I'm just get to have fun in Chicago. They put up with it. They encourage me.
1: Um, that very Bacharach-esque string thing, what was the selves? Was that Jim O'Rourke?
0: John McIntyre on drums, Stephen Prane on keyboard, Tom Watson guitar, me. And me
1: and the one with the big strings section? I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a guy
0: named, a fellow on the record called Charlie Abel. He's a Scotsman I got, I got to know. Okay. And who has got a Cayley band. And he's a brilliant uh, komodo player and he plays on there and also noel
1: uh, um hmm? Is that Act-Shot? Noel Act-Shot, the french guy
0: no that's the guy who works with grubs yeah boy, yeah yeah noel Smith. Okay. and the bass player brilliant bass player i mean the guy reads and writes. i mean uh, an african band came to town the bass player was not allowed to come into the country because he didn't have a visa they called the drag city and said help and they got him, and he had never seen the music before and played a tour with them. I mean, this guy, and now, I, I, mean, but, I mean, so I, I can play, I get great players, and you can have an idea, and it can be realized in some sort of sense. I'm, I'm finally working on a piece of music, first one I've done in three years, and it's a remake of something that we did in, in the Whitney Biennial in 2014, Born in Flames two. It's with a new lyric. Which is a, a kind of an economic critique
1: uh, of
0: the world economy, of uh, the modes of economic uh, you, wealth.
1: Have you continued to work the whole time? Because uh, you know the, the albums have come out every three or four years, and that last one is a few years. COVID floored
0: me. I you know like I mean I knew I met a guy, a really wonderful guy named Sorab Mohebi, the art fig player, a serious dude, and he was working in a gallery here uh, that was run by the Cal Arts and teaching over there, and he invited us to play cor- corrected slogans. And helped me put together a band and helped me play Corrected Slogans in his, in the Red Cat Theater. And it was sold out. And then, oh, that's cool. And then, then he called me and he said, how would you like to put play Corky? And he helped me put together a band from the remnants of his band. He's an Iranian dude. had a band called the 127 Band. And two of his mates live in New York, and he lived in, the, in, the, in, the, he's, he lived in here at the time. And he put together the Corky Band with, I've got a Corky Band, and they can play this record note for note. We played it in New York and Tom Watson is the only loose cannon. He he and I are the loose cannons in this in the equation. And but Corky comes alive. It's real. And so we played in New York and this was in the Watson Rouge and the place was sold out. And came here to LA, played at the hammer. The place was sold out. COVID hit. And that was the end of that. And I haven't played in public since COVID hit in twenty twenty was the end of it. And I may I get offered things, but I don't I'm afraid to go in public. I'm seventy nine years old now. I do not wish to die of COVID, thank you very much. Uh, uh, um, even though there are countermittals, and I've been lucky so far. My wife is protected me. she's a very smart scientist, and so uh, things are going okay. Very good, have...
1: well, yeah, look after yourself, of course, and we hope that as the COVID dissipates into the into the ether, we might...
0: I really want to come to, to Britain, I want. I, I mean, I would love to come to Japan again.
2: You may always hope that you're going to come to Wigan,
0: well. You will. I mean, hook me up in Wigan. I will come to Wigan with a great player. A I read that book. Go so.
1: to Wigan, Peer, yeah, Orwell. It's yeah. rough, rough stuff. But uh, Jim O'Rourke's over in Tokyo. He's been there a long time, so if you, you know, hopefully if you are, you know, if the world opens in that way, you, you know, you, you uh, might make it over.
0: Yeah, we had, I mean, we had wonderful receptions in Japan, and, and I played with every, we played with on, on Zen, Ge, violin on Zen Show. We played with, you know, like I know the first gig, first time we played, just got to know these people. And they were, oh, they're so gracious and, uh, and so knowledgeable and they kind and generous and uh, polite and civilized, unlike America.
1: <laughs> well, well, May. I mean, and, and thank you so much for indulging us in this uh, long. I, I really appreciate um, what, what you know. You've embraced opportunity to be creative through this entire process, and it's it's really inspirational.
0: It scares the hell out of me, old chap. I mean, you're like I don't believe in that. I think all human beings, you know, know how to make it up, and yeah. it's just most most people are not as lucky.
1: There's wonderful music that we can all enjoy. And, and I, I really want to say thank you for all of that stuff you've you brought to us. And um,
0: Bless your hearts. And, um,
1: um, that's wonderful. Well, Phil and, and Ezra, anything you'd like to say to this fine gentleman? Yeah, dissipate. it look
3: like it. It's been an amazing honour and a privilege to, to uh, converse. And thank you very much is all I have to say. I'm floored
0: by you all. Thank you very much.
1: Take care. Um, Take care. Thank, look you, yourself thank you.
0: Bless you, Thank you. Thank you very much. Take You're care. Well. Cheers,
5: Bye bye. Bye for now. Bye bye.
1: Okay.